0: If you'd turn in your copy of the scriptures to Exodus 19, as Nathan read that chapter, um, that, is, that may be the most intense uh, occurrence in all of creation and, and in the scriptures that occurs. certainly the flood, creation, and those things. But it's difficult to try to grasp the immensity of the message of 19, Exodus 19. Uh, it's, it's amazing it starts off there in that first verse it says in the third month some of yours uh, speaks of the new moon or, and, or the third moon in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai for they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness so Israel camped there before the mountain and Moses went up to God. It has been about 70 days since this mass of two million men, women, and children were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. What a victory! Uh, what a dramatic change of, of several hundred years of being in slavery. And now they have been set free. They have entered the wilderness of Sinai. And now they arrive. At the foot of Mount Sinai itself. Here they will remain. We will see this in the coming chapters. They will remain there for the next 11 months. Turmoil and excitement. Has filled their lives completely. There were days when the people claimed. They would die of hunger. To which Yahweh responded by showering bread from heaven to them. Every day. Extreme thirst. And Yahweh creates a giant spring of fresh water gushing out of solid rock. The most powerful army in the world had them trapped. Their backs to the Red Sea. Sheer mountains on either side. No weapons. No training. No experience at all for defense. And suddenly the Lord God blew a path that ocean and he causes the water to pile up like giant walls on either side of them the people pass through the ocean bed says in Hebrews as if on dry land they pass through to the far side of the sea but this was not only a miraculous escape for Israel it proved to be a gigantic trap for Pharaoh and his military the entire Egyptian army in hot pursuit Suddenly destroyed as the walls of water collapse down upon them. And it drowns the entire force. Now, now Moses and the children stand before the Mount Sinai. So what? This is barren wasteland. It is dry and it is lifeless. It is certainly no paradise of garden and groves and it's by no means the land of milk and honey that the promised land is where they are seeking. But verse 3 says, And Moses went up to God. Moses gets to the foot of that mountain and immediately he begins to scale its rugged terrain. He's climbing up over boulders and brush. Why? Yahweh hasn't even called him up. I want you to think back. Months earlier. Many months earlier. Even before Moses was introduced to Pharaoh. Earlier than when he first returned to Egypt. Think back as far. As when we read of Moses. As simply an unknown. Old shepherd man. There he was. 40 years of experience. Herding. Not even his own sheep. Herding his father-in-law's sheep in this wild and desolate area called Horeb. Exodus 3, verse 12. Excuse me, 1 through 12. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn? So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Yahweh said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Can you believe where Moses is now? And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. The sign. Could Moses be thinking, all we have been through in these last brutal months and finally here we are. This is exactly what Yahweh told me would happen. But it is beyond my wildest dreams that it would have ever happened this way. In Exodus 19, Moses will now ascend the mountain of Yahweh three times. His first ascent will be a call to obedience. His second ascent will be a call to holiness. And then on his third ascent, the holiness of God will be displayed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent chapter. Uh, Lord, I thank you that it is not fiction. It is a magnificent report of the, of the most terrifying and stupendous event that we could imagine. And Father, we can read it and, and then just close the book and we forget all about it. So please, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to all of us this morning through your word to bring us nearer to you as we study this. Help us to see you more clearly, more realistically for who you are as as Yahweh, God Almighty. And help us to see the Israelites and ourselves and, Lord, to see the role of Moses. Please, Lord, keep us awake. Keep us attentive to your word. And speak to us. In your name I pray. Amen. Moses' first ascent. It's a call to obedience. And we see Yahweh speaking of his love and care. In verse 3. And the Lord called to him from the mountains saying. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. And to the children of Israel. You have seen. You see Israel has watched with their very own eyes. As Yahweh has fulfilled His covenant promises to them. And the Lord describes it in three parts. He first begins with defending his children. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Through a strategically targeted series of ten plagues. Yahweh decimated and dominated. Every significant idol the Egyptians worshipped. Their economy, their agriculture, their landscape. Their population is decimated. And in his final crushing blow, Yahweh destroyed the entire Egyptian army and its leader. Now, there was literally nothing left of Egypt. Secondly, you have seen how I bore you on eagles' wings. He is sustaining his children. A beautiful word picture here is used, and it comes up again in Deuteronomy chapter 32. There in verse 11, it says, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up and carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. A fellow by the name of McKay, he wrote about this. He says, When it is time for young eagles to leave the Eyrie and learn to fly, The eagle stirs up the nest, but does not abandon her young. If they experience difficulties in flight, the mother bird swoops down below them and literally lifts them up on her wings back to safety. Much like Yahweh, continually arrived in every trial for Israel. Enemies from within and without threatened Israel often, but the Lord would swoop in and deliver Israel at every danger. And thirdly, you have seen how I brought you to myself. The embracing of his children. And to me, this is Yahweh's greatest act. It is his consummate purpose throughout history and especially his purpose in the gospel. Jesus Christ prayed in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, to be brought into the presence of God is the greatest fulfillment of life. There is nothing that can compare. And God is about that. He is bringing us into His presence. Bringing us to Him. How do the children respond? Well, in chapter 19, verse 5, it says, Yahweh goes on to say, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. What is he saying here? You see the Lord has already redeemed his children out of slavery. How? By the blood of the Passover lamb. He has redeemed his children. Secondly, he has declared already that Israel is his firstborn. Not will be, but is. And he has continually demonstrated his covenant to them. Philip, by the name of Montier, says that the law of God is essentially his instruction on how to live a life pleasing to him. And it has this meaning, not only in the Old Testament, but throughout the Bible. God's law is not a ladder of merit. It's not a ladder of merit by which we try to climb by grim obedience to his good books. It is a way of life revealed to those who are already by redemption in his books. He brings us to himself and then he requires us to live so as to please him. The grace of God precedes the law of God. The grace of God precedes the law of God. His grace reaches out to save and it is to those whom he has saved that he reveals his law. The first characteristic of the saved is that they possess, they know, and live by the word of their saving God. McKay wrote, and he gave this simple, it's a kind of profound though, he says, Moses was not given the law on his first visit to the mountain in Exodus chapter 3. This would have implied that salvation is by works. Only when redemption has been accomplished can a redemption be applied. The response of obedience flowed from gratitude for all the Lord had done for them. End quote. You know when Yahweh sent Moses to Egypt to lead his people out. He did not come to make them his sons. They already were his firstborn. As he told Pharaoh in chapter 4 verse 22. Thus says the Lord. Israel is my son. My firstborn. Another comment here. A Quote. It was not, therefore, that they were ordered to obey in order that they might enter the covenant. Hear that. They are not ordered to obey so that they would enter the covenant, but that already being within the covenant, they were called to obey so that they might enjoy the benefits and privileges of God's people. The Lord has acted securing benefits for His people And obedience to him brings the enjoyment of what he has achieved. End quote. We go on and we read that such living will result in this. It will result in fruits of obedience. And what are those fruits? Well, Yahweh says in verse 5, Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. A special treasure. It's the word segulah. It's, it's perfect here. It means Israel is the cherished gem in Yahweh's treasury. Some of the songs we sang this morning bear this out. Yahweh's dominion, his ownership is over All of the universe, all creation. Paul wrote in Colossians, By him all things were created that are in heaven and that on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through, now listen to this, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. How much more thorough could it be? Yahweh is absolutely right when he says here, the world is mine. All the earth is mine. Yet, while all the earth belongs to him, his cherished treasure, his special treasure, are his own very children. In 1 Chronicles 29, David has already given revenue toward building the temple. But now he digs deeper. And he write. it's written in First Chronicles. Moreover, says David, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. A special treasure. That is what we are in Christ to our heavenly father. He goes on to say, Israel will also be kingdoms of priests and, ho- and a holy nation. They shall be a special community of people whose obedience demonstrates to the world who this God is. This is the same role. This is the same role God has given us who follow Jesus Christ. It's described in 1 Peter 2 9 with much the same word, with many of the same words. Peter writes, but you are a chosen generation. You, who have trusted in Jesus, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. His own special people. A peculiar people, some of them, right? Why? Why is that so? So that you'll have your best life now or you'll have the most wonderful experience you can? Not at all. It is written on... Peter says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We try to cry that out on the campuses and in Old Town, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are. People are passing by us continually who are people who have not received mercy. They are not a people. Without Christ, they are destined to hell for eternity. But you, brothers and sisters, you are a people now. And you have received mercy that others haven't. And your purpose in all the glorious blessings and benefits of being as children is that we would proclaim that to this world in which we live. Even the last book of the Bible, Revelation 1 verse 6 says, And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But the question may come up in in Israel's mind. Why such great privilege to Israel? And I would extend that. Why, Why such a great privilege to you and me who believe in Jesus? Why us? Perhaps Israel wondered about that too. Uh, why would the Creator of the universe take them of all people and make them His own special treasure? And if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you may have pondered that too. I know Sherry and I have often asked that of ourselves: Why Israel? Why me? Some of us may even have bloated answers floating around in our swollen heads, like, like, well, because I'm more faithful than many people, or. Because I, I'm just able to understand spiritual things better than others. Or what about this one? I think the Lord may have allowed me into the kingdom because of my deep sense of humility. All that speculation is worthless and it is unnecessary. The Lord actually answers that question for Israel and for you and me. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 He addresses it. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. There's that word again, a special treasure. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of bondage. From the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. Do you get it? Do we get it? God loved Israel because he chose to. That is the reason. It seems inadequate often for us. But that is why he did it. It is all of Him. It is still that way for those who are saved to eternal life in Christ now. It is one of the most exhilarating truths of the entire good news of Jesus Christ. If you have not turned from living for yourself to faith in and living for Jesus, please hear this. You cannot do anything that will make God love you. It is written in Romans 5 Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was not at any any moment when we had begun to turn or somehow we were becoming more sensitive to spiritual things or trying to moralize and, and improve the ethics of our lives. That's not when Christ loved us. Christ died for us when we were filthy and drenched. In sin and rebellion. But who would want any other kind of love? It does not depend on me. It does not depend on you. He chose and it depends on Him. And He is God. What, what a glorious truth in the gospel. First John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love. This is love. Not that we love God. But that He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins at this point Moses in verse 7 came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him and we get the picture here of Moses as the mediator it's a message from Yahweh and he lays this out to his elders and then we read of a message to Yahweh Then all the people answered together and said in verse 8, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. After being reminded of the Lord's lavish love on their behalf, how else could they respond? God's people are also called to respond in obedience in the New Testament. If we read in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and I I took the NIV's uh, rendering of this, then I I appreciate how it's, it's simple here. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship in view of God's mercy and he goes on to say do not conform yourselves to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will Hebrews chapter 10 it says some of the similar idea here Therefore brothers since or because or in view of. Therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since because of we have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus Christ in other words In response to these things, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. These are responses to the glorious, deep, fulfilling, perfect love that God has given to us. It is not to earn it. It is not to secure it so that God keeps loving us. It is our response as children of our Father in all that He has done for us. Are the things you're not doing that that you know Christ would have you to do? You think, well, maybe if I did, if, if He might love me a little better. No, but you would love Him better if you would obey. You would know Him more closely if you would obey. Whatever that might be called, it might be called in your role as a wife. It might be be part of your role as a husband that you've neglected as a child. In your role in the family, in in sharing the gospel with others. You might be part of your role at work. Are you faithful in all that you're doing there in a way that honors Christ? This is not to earn any kind of, as that quote earlier said, merit by which we draw closer up this ladder to God. No. It is in response to the most wonderful Father, Creator, God, Savior, Rock, Shelter that we could ever have. So Moses brought back the words of the people here to the Lord. And then we come to the second ascent, a call to holiness. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. What is God doing here? He is ensuring that the people realize that this is my man. I am speaking through him and I'm going to speak out of this dark cloud in a voice audible so that they will know. This is very important because in the next chapter, what will happen? He will come down from the mountain with what? The Ten Commandments, the law of God. If God had not spoken audibly and confirmed to the people that this is my man, What could they have thought? Well, Moses, where did you get those? Yeah, right. God wrote them on that rock. But God has confirmed the people this is my man audibly so that they would know, and it says that they might believe him forever. Verse 9 So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Consecration was required. Two days of this consecration. The word consecrate, kadash, is repeated four times in this chapter. Moses is commanded to consecrate the people. The priests are to consecrate themselves. And Moses then mentions in verse 24 that there is a consecrating of the mountain." what does that word mean consecrate means to set apart as holy set apart for holy use what is consecrated must be distinct from anything common or profane and then it says they are to wash their clothing it was an outward sign of the inward cleansing from sin the Israelites were to wash their clothing and then in verse 11 and let them be ready for the third day for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of the people You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourself that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And we don't know what those bounds look like. They've, you know, we have up and down our street, as some of you know in Bel-Air, these eternal orange cones that will never leave. (laughs) They've been there, I think, for two years and maybe another couple of years. I don't know. They didn't put cones around it. They didn't probably rope it off. I don't know. But somehow they made it very clear not to go up on that mountain. Why? Why why would they go to such pains to make sure it was clear? Verse 12. You shall set bounds for the people around saying take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death not a hand shall touch him you won't even touch the one you must execute but he shall surely be stoned or shot shot with an arrow whether man or beast he shall not live and when the trumpet sounds long then they shall come near the mountain what is the most serious punishment you can imagine for any crime it's execution it's over how serious was Yahweh any violator of this command was to be stoned to death or shot with an arrow there's no way around this the command is incredibly restrictive and extremely dangerous have you thought about the the pragmatic side of this a shepherd a sheep may stray away or an ox may get out of the, the pen and it goes up onto the mountain. What must be done? And I don't even, I don't even know about this. I, what if a child or a disabled person or a drunk or a fool stumbled up onto that mountain? So what would have been the wisest thing to do in light of this? Parents, think about that. What would have been the wisest thing to do? Stay as far away as possible and be as watchful as you can. This warning was to impress upon the people the absolute perfect and intense holiness of their God. He was their father. He had redeemed them. He had taken them up on eagles' wings. He had destroyed their enemies. He had brought them to himself. But he was Yahweh. And as the great four living creatures in heaven declared day and night, never ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, now why why the mountain? Why was this so serious? Uh, The Jewish Talmud, I I believe, is correct when it says this. It, It was interesting. It says, it is not the place that honors the person. It is not the place that honors the person. Rather, the person honors his place as we found with regard to Mount Sinai, that as long as the divine presence rested upon it, the Torah said, nor let the flocks nor the herds graze before that mountain. Once the divine presence departed from the mountain, the Torah said, when the shofar sounds long, they may come up to the mountain. Indicating that the sanctity was not intrinsic to the place but was due to the divine presence there. One of the study Bibles said the mountain is the Lord's place of meeting with his people. Not his residence. The seriousness of these commands has nothing to do with the mountain. And everything to do with Yahweh who has chosen to manifest himself there. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and he sanctified the people now we're going to see this consecration, this sanctification by the mediator. And have you ever thought as you read that, how did he do this? How did he consecrate them? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us at this point. But one theologian had this to say, and it seemed very appropriate in light of all that's going on here. He said, the most likely explanation is that Moses performed some kind of sacrifice. This is what God has always required for holiness. Before we can be considered righteous in God's sight, a sacrifice must be made for our sins. Keep that in mind for us. He goes on. This is what Adam and Eve needed when they failed in their attempt to cover up their sin. They needed the grace of God who clothed them with the skins of animals offered in their place. The best way for Moses to consecrate the Israelites, therefore, was to offer a sacrifice for their sins. And he had a good precedent for this in his own experience. Before God brought Israel out of Egypt, he told Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn." How did Moses consecrate the firstborn of Israel? By offering an animal sacrifice, a substitute for their sins. Moses would do the same thing later when it came time for him to set apart Aaron and his sons as Israel's priests. As part of their priestly consecration, Moses sacrificed a young bull and two rams as a sin offering. He closes and says, Although we cannot be certain, it seems probable that when Moses was told to consecrate the Israelites, He did it the only way he knew how which was to offer a sacrifice. And the people were to consecrate themselves as then they were to wash their clothes. Again it's simply an outward symbol of an inner cleansing of their heart from sin. And then he said to the people be ready for the third day do not come near your wives. Interesting command this is a command to refrain from the physical union of husbands and wives during their three-day period of preparation. Yahweh does not call for this prohibition of sexual relations because of any sinfulness of this special marriage gift. Instead, it is because in a happy and intimate godly marriage, the physical union of man and wife involves complete immersion of both man and wife with each other. As one author wrote, quote, in the deepest emotional delight and commitment known on earth. Yahweh's restriction was to put in place at this important moment in time because the Lord wished to have his people's hearts holy for himself. That's a very practical point. Paul speaks of this even in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 in a different way. He wrote, do not deprive one another, husbands and wives, from the sexual union, except with consent for a time. Why? that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer. Yahweh does call us to times of Him alone in our lives. And then we come in verse 16 to the third ascent. And here, there's no way anything I say can capture what we read here. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. The reality of Yahweh's presence is terrifying. Even for Moses in Hebrews 12 we read and so terrifying was that sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. Somehow imagine that. You guys have been to the mountains. You know, it's, can you picture that? a a gigantic mountain that stands out among the others covered in smoke fire coming down upon it not just little spots fire coming down upon it smoke billowing up from it and it is shaking it is quaking and it is right before you you are at the foot of it and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder Moses spoke and God answered him by voice then the loud excuse me then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up Wow The mountain was covered in the presence of the Lord Yahweh evidenced himself by fire producing thick smoke as it burned the mountain the ground around them pitched and heaved. An earthquake. It is it is one of the most frightening experiences you can go through. The once solid dependable ground you walked on, worked on, slept on all your life. Moves and it rolls. Your equilibrium is gone. And your confidence vanishes. Yahweh comes and it is sensational. Now that, that word sensational... It may seem too disrespectful or too casual for what exploded on that mountain. Some commentators emphasize the amazing sights and sounds that occurred. But that doesn't cover it at all. This much more than sights and sounds. The word sensation is defined the process that allows our brains to take in information via our five senses. Which can then be experienced and interpreted by the brain. Sensation occurs thanks to our five sensory systems: vision, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. Yahweh's visitation of the mountain is one of the most sensational events to occur on this planet planet. You had the thick clouds, you had the flames, you had the smoke. You had the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake, and the loud trumpet. It stretches every Israeli's sense to their limit. You think about it, the sights that you would have seen. The smells of everything burning. You you would have had to cough. You would have have tasted it. You would have felt the ground swelling and moving. You would have felt the heat. Sensation is is the only way to describe it. Every sense would have been overloaded as this poured out before you and Moses speaks to God in this and God speaks back to him the creator identified Moses he is my man to Israel and but as all seems to rise to this great climax verse 21 suddenly the Lord said to Moses Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go away, just away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. All may have looked right to Moses and to the people, but the Lord who sees, Yahweh Roi, he saw something. And it caused him to command Moses to get back down and warn the people. And we are not told what the violation was. Perhaps some of the people were starting to push against the mountain barriers. It sounds like some were becoming curious, wanting to step in and, and get a glimpse closer of who is this God? What is he like? Even the priests, it seems like, have become apathetic perhaps in their holiness. And, and one question is, who were the priests? I just throw that in there because the role of priest, the office of priest doesn't come until Exodus 40. So what is happening here? But if we look in Exodus 13 verse 2, the Lord commanded, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel. Both the man and beast it is mine. They were set apart. They were set aside. They were consecrated. The firstborn. Remember that to consecrate means that. Set apart for holy use. Then in Exodus 24 verse 5. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel. Who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. Of oxen to the Lord. These young men although not given the title of priests. Filled the same role in offering sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. And then in Numbers chapter 3. It says take the Levites. Instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. In Numbers 3. The Levites replaced the firstborn of the children of Israel. In the role as priest. More than likely that is who. Yahweh was speaking of when He said. The priests. And then we end with verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. In in closing, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. If you haven't had the joy of reading some of these parallel passages, it's just amazing what the New Testament tells us about the Old Testament. See if you picture what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he starts in chapter 12, verse 18. And he's creating the contrast. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet. And the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, then, if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, straight out of Exodus. But verse 22 But, but, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. That is what we have in the new covenant. That is what Jesus has given us. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 25. See, in response, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. You see both sides of this magnificent Yahweh. The the riches it promises, the blessings. But we must serve him with reverence and godly fear. For he is a consuming fire. You see the children of Israel, if it was just them and Yahweh, they were in trouble. They needed a mediator who could approach Yahweh for them and speak from Yahweh to them. One of the clearest messages of Exodus 19 is that Moses was a mediator who approached Yahweh on behalf of the people and approached the people on behalf of God. But Moses, Moses would die. He was mortal. He would sin. He would even be kept from entering the land of promise because of his sin. But as we have talked over and over again, Here was the type and shadow of what was to come. He was the shadow of a perfect mediator that someday would come to completely unite God and man. All the offerings and sacrifices Moses and the priests offered to God, they never truly removed sin. They could not bring eternal fellowship with God. Hebrews 10 says, For it is not possible it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins therefore when he when Christ came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you do not desire but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure then I said behold I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will O God previously saying sacrifice and offering burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, Mount Sinai, that he may establish the second, Mount Zion, Christ the Savior. 1 Timothy, Paul wrote, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, The man, Christ Jesus. There is only one who can make you God's special treasure. But he can. Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, Let us therefore sheepishly groveling come to the throne. No. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly. We can come as Moses came because we are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been washed clean and we have been adopted as sons. I've told you guys a little picture of my life when I was about 10 years old. Uh, My dad was a superintendent of schools and we were in a small community and that was a big deal. And, uh, you know, a lot of teachers underneath him and the community was well behind the school and and he had an office and he had a secretary outside in this receiving area and you couldn't go in to see him unless you had an appointment. But I could come in there after school and if I needed something, I'd say hi to the secretary and knock on the door and I'd go right on in. I was bold. Why? nothing that I did but I was his son far greater than that is who you and I are as adopted sons and daughters to our God close with First Peter 2 repeating from earlier but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for the word that you have given to us in Exodus 19 Deuteronomy particularly in Hebrews this morning these, these are life giving words they are sharper than a two edged sword they are powerful they are living the word goes on to say that all things are naked and open to him to whom we must give an account Lord each of us will do that. I pray that that you will draw us near to you. Lord, I pray that our lives will bring great glory and honor to you as we live according to what you have done. Lord, for those who are here this morning that have refused to trust in you, I pray that you will grant them mercy and that they will turn and follow Jesus. Lord, thank you that you have called us to be yours, that we were not a people, but now we are the very people of God that we had no mercy and you have lavishly poured mercy upon us. In your name we pray, amen.